1: Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show. Episode 41. This, as always, is the un-undisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during the Go for the Throat debate show, that is undisputed. Today, I will tell you why Aaron Bleepin Rogers is to me and to my cowboys, Count Dracula. Today, I will go deep in ways I have not gone yet on how Kyrie Irving's anti-Semitic post impacted the many, many Jewish people around me, including my wife. Today, I will, as always, answer many of your questions one about my cooking skills, one about my undisputed memory bank or lack thereof, and one about what it has meant to me to have my brother, little Wayne, move from Miami all the way out here near where Ernestine and I live in Los Angeles. Speaking of Ernestine, I will also go into which TV show The two of us have watched every single Friday night for 17 years. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. Let's start with a question from you, shall we? How about Ian from Chicago? Does returning to Green Bay this weekend remind you that it wasn't a catch? (sighs) Dear Ian. No, it reminds me that it absolutely, positively, irrefutably, unequivocally was a touchdown catch by Des Bryant at Lambeau Field in Green Bay on January the 15th, 2015 in a playoff game that my Dallas Cowboys should have won 28 to 26. That's what it reminds me of. But beyond that, I'll try to let that go for the moment. I'm about to get real, real with you because I'm getting real scared about having to deal with that same Packers quarterback this Sunday who did a number on my Cowboys that Sunday back in 2015, just as he has beaten us both times that we faced him in playoff games, as well as he has beaten us five of the seven times we've had to deal with him in regular season games. That's right. Aaron Rodgers has owned me and my Dallas Cowboys. This is the same choking dog, Aaron Rodgers, who has often been such a disaster for the Packers in so many other playoff games. So this Sunday, 425 Eastern on Fox, my Cowboys once again will be in Green Bay to play what's left of the 2022 Green Bay Packers who are, as we all know, decimated by injuries and all, court, all, all manner of dissension oozing from the finger-pointing, blame-deflecting quarterback who just might have played the worst, at least regular season, game of his career last Sunday at Detroit against the worst defense in pro football. Same Aaron Rodgers who threw only five interceptions two years before and four interceptions a year ago as he won back-to-back MVPs those last two years. He threw three interceptions, three So Not Aaron interceptions at Detroit and lost 15 to 9. Aaron Rodgers? Aaron Bleepin Rodgers lost to the Lions 15 to 9? That man still must be on ayahuasca. The Green Bay Packers are 3 and 6. 6. My guy, Lil Wayne. Who bleeds Packers green and gold has since he was a little kid back in New Orleans when his father brought home from the Super Bowl some green and gold paraphernalia, he felt hard for the Packers. But Wayne the other night after that game at Detroit was moved to tweet R.I.P. to the season. We should have gotten rid of twelve before the season. What? You got to understand. Wayne is flat out plugged in up in Green Bay. He knows players, he knows coaches, he knows executives, he knows. And you can Lambo leap to the conclusion that Wayne has been hearing things from inside that a whole lot of people within those franchise walls. Those people have had enough of the highest paid quarterback in all of football, the $50 million man that is number 12, Aaron Rodgers. Wayne now has growing love for Jordan Love, the quarterback drafted, of course, in the first round to ultimately replace Aaron Rodgers. So once upon a time, Aaron Bleepin' Rodgers referred to Aaron's greatness. Now Aaron Bleep and Rogers refers to that Bleep and Rogers as in, wait, he threw three interceptions? Now, back to me. Lifelong, diehard, delusional Dallas Cowboy fan that I am. I'm still calling Aaron Rodgers Aaron Bleepin' Rogers because of what he has routinely done to my Cowboys. And what I just know, he, he still believes he's highly capable of doing this Sunday. Just when you think he's quote unquote dead. He had some remarks he made on the Pat McAfee show a few days back. About how, hey, he's still that back to back MVP. I believe those remarks were made from a position of strength because he knows he's about to get to face my cowboys at Lambeau. Last week on this podcast, I talked about horror movies, the ones I can and cannot stomach. To me, and I'm not exaggerating, Aaron Rodgers, for me, stepped right out of one of those horror movies. To me, He is Count Dracula from Transylvania, Wisconsin. He's flying into Lambeau as a bat who turns into Count Dracula, black cape and all. To me, Aaron is that too cool, above it all, hip, flip, sarcastic, handsome, prince of darkness in Black Cape. He loves nothing more than sucking the life out of my Dallas Cowboys. To me, Aaron is my worst nightmare because he's unkillable and he's anything but dead right now. Quick, get me some garlic, please. It'll be dark by kickoff late Sunday afternoon at Lambeau. I do believe with all my heart and soul that Aaron Rodgers would rather beat my Cowboys than any other NFL team. And here is why. Before that 2005 draft, as you might remember, many thought that the 49ers would take Aaron Rodgers number one overall over Alex Smith. After all, Rodgers had grown up, a 49ers fan up in Northern California. And of course... The Niners took Alex Smith, and Rodgers began to fall and fall and fall down, 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 down the board as he sat and sat and sat some more in the green room, humiliated on national TV, sat and sat and sat some more. So guess which team had two picks in that first round? at number 11 and number 20, my Cowboys. Guess where I believe Aaron Rodgers secretly wanted to go? Dallas, trust me on this. Every player, Shannon Sharp always disagrees with me on this, but I think he's just trying to protect himself. I I think he's a closet Cowboy fan, they all are. We have Eric Dickerson on the show, closet Cowboy fan, the Rambassador. They all have Dallas envy deep down. To me, just about every NFL player wishes he could play for America's team, the world's most valuable team, by far the NFL's most watched team when it comes to TV ratings. Who doesn't want to play at Jerry World, the eighth wonder of the world, in Dallas, Texas, the NFL's Hollywood, Green Bay was once Known as Tidal Town, certainly back in the Lombardi days. But to me, Dallas has always been the real tinsel town for the Cowboys. The NFL world revolves around the sun that sets right in the middle of the country that is Dallas. So, as you also might remember, The year before that draft, 2005, Dallas had signed this undrafted free agent quarterback out of Eastern Illinois named Romo. But Romo wouldn't really get his shot to start starting for my Cowboys until 2006, which which was actually two seasons after Aaron Rodgers' draft. So that very next season after the draft, 2005 season, my Cowboys started Drew Bledsoe, that Drew Bledsoe, all 16 games, and then they started him six more before Romo got his shot in the 06 season that next season. That's Drew Bledsoe, whom Tom Brady, of course, had rendered obsolete in New England. At number 11 in that 2005 draft, the Cowboys took DeMarcus Ware out of Troy. No issue there. DeMarcus made nine Pro Bowls but he didn't play quarterback, and he just simply was never as valuable, obviously, as Aaron Rodgers would become. Then at number 20, my Cowboys took another defensive lineman, this one defensive end, Marcus Spears out of LSU. Spears turned out to be a pretty good player, a stalwart, but no Pro Bowls. Certainly no Aaron Rodgers. Just imagine how history might have changed if with the, let's just say, 20th overall pick in 2005, the Dallas Cowboys had selected Aaron Bleepin' Rogers. Would I have taken Aaron Rodgers over Wisconsin native Tony Romo? Uh, yeah. Huh. Aaron Rogers finally went... 24th to Green Bay, and the rest is history. But I believe he has been trying to get even with us, as in my cowboys, ever since. I believe that he's even trying to get even with me because I'm pretty sure I'm trying to be objective. I'm pretty sure that from the start, I was Aaron's harshest critic. He used to fire back at me in my ESPN days, but I was calling him out for being that finger-pointing, blame-deflecting diva that he is, that unleader that he is. Before anybody was calling him out, I was. Shannon Sharp always says, transcendent thrower of the football, greatest thrower of the football ever. Yeah, but what happens in the playoffs? Aaron Rodgers has been a flat-out playoff gagger except for that one long-ago, far-away, wild-card road to the Super Bowl. They went on the road and won three games to get to the game Super Bowl in Dallas. They did win it. Troy Polamalu had a pulled hamstring. My friend Ryan Clark is kind of on his last legs, and Aaron threw a party and won MVP, and they won the Super Bowl. Of all people, all coaches, Mike McCarthy, please drop the Mike McCarthy. Now, I'm stuck with it. But the point is Aaron Rodgers overall is 11 and 10 in the postseason. 11 and 10, that's Aaron Bleepin Rodgers. Since that long ago Super Bowl role, he's 7 and 9 in the postseason. He's 1 and 4 in NFC championship games. Yet think about this, he's seven and two against Dallas. He's two and O against Dallas when it really counts in playoff games. What? The choker just chokes the life out of us. I've never seen anything quite like it. I'm pretty sure that Count Dracula also loves sticking it to me as well as to my Cowboys. One way to shut me up, Best way to get even, beat my team. Beat the hell, the unholy hell out of my team. So let me count the ways he has done just that. I do not count, as in Dracula, Roger's first game against Dallas because it was only the third game he had started in his entire career. It was at Lambeau on September 21st, 2008. The Packers would go 6-10 that season. They weren't very good. That day, Romo was okay, but Dallas literally ran the Packers off the field with 217 yards rushing, Dallas 27, Green Bay 16. But next came November 15, 2009 at Lambeau. Huh. Rogers 17, Dallas 7. And here we went. November 7th, 2010, Rodgers 45, Dallas 7. What? Uh, Guess what? That launched Green Bay on a Super Bowl roll. As Rodgers won his one and only ring in his first and last Super Bowl shot. Then came that game, that day. January 11, 2015, when Aaron Rodgers threw for 316 yards with three touchdowns and no picks at Lambeau against my Dallas Cowboys. Yet, Tony Romo faced fourth and two at the Green Bay, 32 with 442 left. Romo went for broke. He went deep up the far sideline to Des Bryant who caught it, ran two strides with it, made an obvious football move with it, controlled it to the point he switched it to his left hand because he is left-handed. And Des Bryant slammed the football on the goal line just the way running backs often slam it on the goal line. Ball did pop loose, but believe it or not, As Dez rolled, the ball popped loose onto his chest and he re-controlled it without it ever hitting the ground, having lost control of it. The ref on the spot watched the whole thing play out right before his very eyes and raised both arms to signal touchdown. I watched it live, ironically, in a Dallas hotel room because we had taken first take at that point to Dallas ahead of the college football championship game. So I'm in a Dallas hotel room watching this play out and I raised my arms to signal touchdown because clear as day, which was night by then in Green Bay, it was a touchdown. And who of all coaches challenged it? It was, please drop the Mike McCarthy. Now in Dallas, Mike McCarthy thinks that red flag in his back pocket is actually a handkerchief uh, with which he's supposed to wipe his nose. But that day, somebody woke up Mike McCarthy on the Green Bay sideline, and, and the bump on the log that is Mike McCarthy said, up, up shh, shh, sh- shh. Should I challenge? Yeah, challenge. And he won the challenge. I don't know how he won the challenge, but he did. Somebody upstairs, somebody in New York, have it in for Jerry Jones. It happens. Seemed like it happened then because there has never been a bigger robbery in an NFL playoff game than that day at that stadium by that refereeing crew. Des caught it.
2: I'll say it again. Des caught it. But we caught the L. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services.
1: Count Dracula disguised his number 12, faced a third and seven, and he hit this kid I'd never heard of named Devontae Adams for 26 yards, faced a third and 11. He had a guy who would eventually play for Dallas named Randall Cobb for 12 more yards, ball game. Green Bay went on to play in the NFC Championship game at Seattle, where Aaron Rodgers stunk it up, maybe the worst he ever has in a playoff game. Same Seattle, where my Cowboys had won during the regular season against that Legion of Boom. Would have won again. Super Bowl, here we would have come. I don't think we would have beaten the GOAT. Seattle didn't, but we would have gotten to a Super Bowl. We would have gotten to our first NFC Championship game since the 1995 season seems like yesterday. What a playoff choker Aaron Rodgers has been, except against my Cowboys, December 13, 2015, regular season game at Lambeau. Well, why is? Every Dallas-Green Bay game at Lambeau. I I don't know. Maybe somebody upstairs doesn't like Jerry Jones. Aaron Rodgers, 28, Dallas 7, albeit against my quarterback that day, Matt Castle, who was no Cooper Rush. But next came yet another game at Lambeau. Except this time my quarterback was this fourth round rookie out of Mississippi State, this kid named Prescott, as in Dak, and this time, riding shotgun for Dak was another rookie out of the Ohio State, kid named Ezekiel Elliott. Hello, world! Cowboys 30, Aaron Rodgers 16, as Dak threw for 247 and Zeke ran for 157, and I thought, i Got this, and I don't got it. Dracula was just setting us up. Back he came that same year for a playoff game at Jerry World against my 13-3 and Cowboys, my number one seeded Cowboys, coming off a bye week. And before you could say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It was State Farm star Aaron Rodgers, 21, Cowboys 3. It, it was like, bam, 21 to 3. What? What just happened? But back, back, battled to tie the score at 31. And with 12 seconds left, we had him. We had him cold. We had him dead to rights. Aaron Rodgers was backed up third and twenty at his own thirty-two. We we got you, man, dead to rights. And he rolled left as his pocket moved to the left, and against a cowboy defense playing prevent with three of the DBs all the way back on our twenty-yard line. Jared Cook snaked all the way across the field. And right in front of the great Byron Jones, first-round pick by my Cowboys, he caught what turned out to be just a pitch-and-catch pass for 32 bleeping yards, setting up a 51-yard field goal that did something I've never ever seen a field goal do. In all my years of covering football, I've never seen a football behave this way. As I call him, Mason Crossbar, hooked it right off his foot, hooked it dead left. Go look at the video. Somehow it mysteriously, impossibly, faded back to the right just enough that it, it somehow moved just inside the left upright for the game-winning field goal from 51 yards. Hand of God or hand of Dracula? I mean, did anybody, maybe somebody noticed, was, was there a vampire bat up there circling, easing that kick back just inside the upright? Hook kicks do not suddenly turn right. They just don't. Trust me. I play enough golf to know if I snap hook a tee shot, there's only one way it's going to move back to the right, and that's if there is high, high wind. That was indoors at Jerry World, the roof was closed. There's no wind, no wind whatsoever. Back came Dracula again to Jerry World next year, October 8th of 2017. Final Green Bay drive. They're down 31-28. They're facing third and eight at the Cowboy 30. And Aaron Bleepen ran for 18 yards. Killed me. Tore my guts out. All of a sudden, it's first and 10 at the Cowboy 12. Fade route to that kid, Devontae. Hadn't really noticed him that much. Fade route on little tiny Jordan Lewis. I don't know. He's 5'9", 5'10", maybe. Devontae's at least 6'2". Incomplete. Battles his ass off. Incomplete. And guess what Aaron Bleepin did? Guess what that too cool hip flip Count Dracula did? He just tells Devontae, run the same route again. Just run it again. He can't stop you. Same route, same fade throw, touchdown, ball game. Aaron Bleepin Rogers which led to my biggest all-time regular season humiliation it was October 6th of 2019 would you believe with 6 minutes to go in the third quarter at Jerry at Jerry World it was Aaron Rodgers 24 Dallas nothing i i actually picked the cowboys to win the game the cowboys were actually favored by I think it was four points to win the game. It did wind up 34 to 24, Aaron, because Dak packed on so many empty calorie yards in the fourth quarter, but it was never in doubt. So think about this. My Cowboys are four and four in playoff games against the Green Bay Packers. The first two were losses to the man for whom the Super Bowl trophy is named. That would be Vince Lombardi in back-to-back, what were then called NFL championship games. First one was at the old Cotton Bowl in Dallas where I saw my first Cowboy game, 1961. That day, Bart Starr, the Green Bay quarterback, badly outplayed, completely outplayed. Dandy Don Meredith, my favorite player of the era, 34 to 27, and it wasn't that close. Second was the next year, the infamous ice ball played in 48 below windshield on the literally frozen tundra at Lambeau Field. Came down to a quarterback sneak by Bart Starr from inside the one. I think it was about two feet away. 16 seconds left. Dallas was up 17 to 14. They should not have played the game. It was just brutally cold. Impossibly, almost laughably cold. And on a double-team block of my guy Jethro Pugh by Jerry Kramer, Ken Bowman. Bart Starr skated in for the touchdown ripped my heart out i watched that game from my dad's hospital room at the va hospital in oklahoma city as he underwent yet another failed rehab stint for alcoholism he slept that afternoon while i cried those Lombardi Packers went on to win the first two Super Bowls after winning the NFL championship games against my Cowboys. But they went on to win the first two Super Bowls over the then AFL's Kansas City and Oakland. But then, believe it or not, came four straight Cowboy playoff wins over Green Bay. The first was a Danny White game over Lynn Dickey in 1983. I didn't make too much of it. Green Bay was not very good. Lynn Dickey used to haunt my Oklahoma Sooners when he played and threw the football for Kansas State, but not when he played for Green Bay. And then the next three years, would you believe we beat the great Brett Favre three straight times? Yes, siree, We did. 93, 94, 95. We beat Brett Favre in playoff games all at Texas Stadium. We owned Brett Favre. Then some guy who had to wait three years behind Brett Favre owned us. The casket opened and up rose Count Dracula. So now this Sunday, my Cowboys should drive a stake right through Dracula's cold heart. My team is way better than Green Bay, way healthier, way happier. Cowboys are favored by five-ish on Undisputed, on live national TV. I have already booked it. Dallas will effectively end Green Bay's season. And who knows, maybe Aaron Rodgers' career. We owe him. For once, we should own him. But I hate to admit it publicly, Aaron bleepin Rodgers still scares the hell out of me. Back to your questions. This is Gregory from Minneapolis. Does Skip Bayless cook? No, he does not cook. I do come from a long line of cooks, and I was the one and only who rebelled. I was the black sheep of my cooking family. My father, all through my childhood, got up at four o'clock in the morning, which now, in my world, seems kind of late. I get up at two o'clock, but my father always got up at four to go cook the ribs for the little barbecue joint he owned and operated on the south side of Oklahoma City. My little brother, Rick, two years younger than me, so to speak, ate up, going with my father to work to help him cook. Rick used that little barbecue joint as a springboard to start him as one of America's top chefs. Winner of the prestigious James Beard Award, not only for best chef, excuse me, best chef, but also for best restaurant. That being the Topolobampo Room in Chicago, Obama's favorite restaurant. Very proud of my brother, though I am not close with him. My father forced me to work at the little barbecue joint called the Hickory House, all the way up through high school. I mostly cleaned off tables and swept the floor. But he did force me to quote unquote unquote cook. It was called preparation work. I guess it's the closest I ever came to cooking. So one morning, While I was hating my job, I was mindlessly washing and then chopping up green peppers, whole green peppers. Looked like apples, but they were green peppers. I would wash them, then I would chop them in two, then I would chop them into bits with a giant butcher knife. You know what's coming. One of the green peppers was wet, because I just washed it. And I wasn't thinking, I wasn't concentrating, I was thinking about basketball. The knife slipped and I laid open my index finger, all the way to the bone. I didn't say a word. I walked straight into my father's office. We did not get along. And I said, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to take me to the emergency room He was furious. He did not have time to take me to the emergency room because we were about to open for lunch at 11 a.m. That scar still reminds me why I don't cook. I chose my wife, Ernestine, in large part because she does not cook, even though of late she's kind of gotten into making soups from scratch. A lentil soup is really good and a pea soup. It's it's even better. But that's it, that's the extent. Mostly we let the experts cook for us, the Rick Baylisses of the world. Another question from Geo from Norwalk, Connecticut. How quickly do you forget the most recent undisputed and move on to the next? Now that for me is an intriguing question. I have, I should say I was blessed with, although my wife says cursed with occasionally, but I was blessed with what is called a biographical memory. Seriously, I can remember like it was yesterday what I got for Christmas when I was four years old. Ugly green bike. I don't know what my father was thinking. It's my first bike. Got me a girl's bike weird dude my father told my mother well i don't want him slipping and hurting himself what that's kind of creepy i can remember scores and circumstances and how many hits i got in just about every little league game i played for the mayfair grade school chipmunks i can remember in which theater I saw every movie I've ever seen, and with whom. And that dates all the way back to childhood, just off the top of my head. When I was 12, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I saw a movie called Jason and the Argonauts at the Tower Theater in downtown Oklahoma City with my little brother, as we called him then, Ricky, And my cousin, Laura Catherine, whose nickname was Tudor. Don't ask me why. The three of us went to see Jason and the Argonauts. It's like it was yesterday. I I can remember, I saw Jaws the night it opened. Palm Beach Mall Theater, there were two of them. We were in the first one. It was my first wife, Liz, and I. I. I could go on and on. But here's the crazy part. Undisputed for me comes so fast and furiously, five days a week, 49 weeks a year. For the life of me, I can't remember yesterday's show, not even yesterday's. My memory can only store so much, my flash memory. And I have to let it go as soon as it's over or I risk Overload. I, I don't know, I risk insanity. We always get the ratings one day later off each show. And sometimes I want to check which topic spiked in yesterday's show. And I have to ask our producer Tyler Corn, hey, which topic came at that time? Tells me. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember we did that topic. So I can tell you that I saw The Shining. I saw it in Dallas, the Jack Nicholson, Stephen King movie. Saw it in Dallas at North Park Mall theaters. There was one and two on one side of Central Expressway, three and four on the other. I saw it in theater one with my girlfriend at the time, Nancy. Remember it like it was last night. But I cannot tell you exactly what we did yesterday on Undisputed. Now, quick aside concerning my 17 year relationship with my wife, Ernestine. Our bond has been built on a ritual we observe every single Friday night, a bond I could not have imagined when we first met. We watch all five Jeopardies that we take during the week. Now, sometimes if, if I do have to watch, let's say a LeBron game, a Laker game on a Friday night, maybe we don't get to the final two and we watch them late on Saturday night after whatever college football game I have to watch. But we do watch Jeopardy this week. We're in the middle of this year's Tournament of Champions. I started watching Jeopardy! back in my high school days when the host dating myself, the host was Art Fleming. This is pre-Alex Trebek. But I do believe that my wife, Ernestine, watches Jeopardy! in part because she knows how much I love testing myself on Jeopardy! I am crazy competitive, and I'm either competing with myself or with Ernestine. She does love watching Jeopardy, but I I think she more than me loves to love or hate the, the contestants on each show. Or the new hosts in place of the late great Alex. She loves Mayim Bialik. She cannot stand Ken Jennings. But even though she isn't nearly as competitive as I am, she does get a kick out of burning me in some categories that she owns. Pop culture, food, drink, fashion, potpourri. Now you give me the right categories, I am Jordan-esque on Jeopardy! History, literature, Shakespeare, geography, colleges, and of course, anything sports. I steamroll. Ernestine has often encouraged me to become a Celebrity Jeopardy contestant. She believes she could pull strings. Maybe somebody here could pull strings to get me on. Shannon Sharp was once a Celebrity Jeopardy contestant, and he won. Would I love to ever do battle with Shannon on Jeopardy? Maybe we should try that in place of Undisputed someday. But... While Ernestine pushes me, I always wimp out on doing Celebrity Jeopardy because I just know that I would be a prisoner of that I could get exposed by whatever categories I was handed. I mean, if you stick me with science, astronomy, or mathematics, or... I could go on and on. I I'd be just as lost as LeBron was in the 2011 NBA Finals. All I know for sure about Jeopardy is it is our thing. I love you, Ernestine. One more question from you from Harry from Queens. What did Lil Wayne moving to LA do for your friendship and relationship? Thank you for asking that. Another great question. It changed it dramatically, Harry. Now every, I don't know, a couple of months, Ernestine and I drive out the 30, 40 minutes, depending on traffic it takes, to get to Lil Wayne's new abode. And we just hang out for a couple hours. We talk mostly life, maybe a little sports. Believe me on this, Ernestine has grown at least as close to Wayne as I am. Can they ever make each other laugh? And now, when the occasion arises for Wayne to be on the show, on Undisputed, I I can just text or call, and, and he's like, what time you want me? And he and Mac and the gang, they're there. They're gonna drive right in, right into Fox's movie lot, where I sit right now. Just downstairs from here, about three floors is where we do Undisputed Live every weekday from 6.30 to 9 L.A. time. If I need Wayne at 7.30 a.m., he'll be there, and he'll be early. He just loves the energy of the Fox lot, of the studio, of the debate desk. He loves to come in, and now that he lives here, he can. You might have seen last Monday's show. On the fly, I wanted him to join us to go deeper into his RIP Packers tweet. But that time he had to do it remote because he was in Las Vegas where he had played on Saturday night and he was still there on Sunday. But naturally, you know what happened early Monday morning, the hotel thought he had already checked out, so they cut off his Wi-Fi just as we had him on live and we lost him off the top for a couple of minutes, but only a couple. We got him back. He was sensational as always. Wayne is a, obviously, musical genius, but to me, he has sports genius. That's why I love so much talking sports with him more than anybody else in my life. I'm blessed to have him in my life, but more important, now in my town. And by the way, Wayne keeps threatening to replace our theme song, his No Mercy, with what he says will be an even better theme song. And, and I say to him, said several times to him, you cannot top the greatest theme song in the history of television. And he always says to me, watch me. Now allow me to qualify myself as I tell you exactly what I think of what Kyrie Irving did. I grew up, as I keep mentioning, in Oklahoma City, going to public schools with very few Jewish kids. We had one, to my knowledge, at Mayfair Elementary. His name was Philip Albert. Extremely nice kid. He lived about two blocks up from me on 50th Street in the one house on a very busy four-lane street that was surrounded by very high hedges. I didn't understand that then, but I do now. Then, I knew nothing about Jewish people, about Judaism, Jewish culture. Now I have a much better idea. But then I used to wonder about everything Jewish when I drove often past the big Jewish temple at the corner of 50th and Pennsylvania across from Penn Square Mall which is still there, maybe a mile and a half up 50th from where I grew up in my house. But I grew up going to a Methodist church called Epworth Methodist. So, I did know that Jesus was, from the Bible, a Jew. And I knew from the gospel stories of the crucifixion that after Jesus had been nailed to the cross, the Roman soldiers mocked him saying, if you're king of the Jews, save yourself. But in my household... Nothing was ever, ever said, ever mentioned about Jewish people. Nothing, nothing bad, nothing good, just nothing, period. There were, I, I don't know, maybe a couple of Jewish kids at my high school, which happened to be Northwest class in high school. the biggest school in the state at that point. It was around 3,000 students, maybe a couple of Jewish kids. And at that point, if you told me, one day I'd be married to a Jewish girl from New York and that I would belong to a predominantly Jewish golf club in Los Angeles, I'd have said, what? Me? From Oklahoma City? Yes,
0: you. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers, to string trimmers and more. Right now, save $30 on the American-made steel FS-56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS-56 RCE is made in America of US and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.
1: I did get to know several Jewish kids on my freshman dorm floor at Vanderbilt, where there were two Jewish fraternities. And I I worked very closely with uh, a couple of Jewish kids on our school newspaper called The Hustler, still going strong. But it was not yet in my consciousness to ask them what it was like or what it meant to be, to be Jewish. It wasn't until I was out of college out here in Los Angeles, working for the LA Times, that I met and clicked with Lee Steinberg. This is before he became super agent to all the top NFL quarterbacks. Lee, at that point, was still trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. He was still living with his parents about two blocks from me in West Los Angeles. And I wound up spending a lot of time at his house, got to know his father, who was a high school principal, and his mother, who was a librarian in Culver City, not far from where I sit right now in West L.A. And I began to learn from Lee's parents and from Lee about what it meant to be Jewish. Maybe that helped me. Maybe that helped pave the way for where my life was about to head. I met my... Now wife, Ernestine, in 2005 in New York City, when I was working at Cold Pizza, she was working in PR, and she brought an actor named Kevin Dillon to be on my show. And did we ever click? Ernestine's mom, Evelyn, God rest her soul, was Jewish from the Lower East Side of Manhattan where she grew up poor and often afraid to say her last name, which is Jacobs, in fear being Jewish would keep her from getting jobs. Ernestine's father, on the other hand, was Italian and Catholic, but as Ernestine always says in the Jewish culture and tradition, when your mother is Jewish, you are Jewish. Evelyn Jacobs became like a mother to me, a kid from Oklahoma City. And so it was. Six years ago, I left ESPN for FS1, moved out here to L.A. And right away, because I do play a little golf, I'm addicted, I'm obsessed, I wanted to join a golf club. And the truth is, there just aren't many options for golf clubs here on the west side of Los Angeles. But by chance, we did wind up at a dinner with the membership chairman of Brentwood Country Club, just a couple of blocks from LeBron's house in Brentwood. And that membership chairman thought he could get us into Brentwood. Trust me, it was not easy. Trust me on this. Brentwood's members are not impressed with what I do for a living. Did it help that my wife is Jewish? and she just absolutely stole the show when we went before the membership committee, the membership board one night. I don't know, maybe it helped. Brentwood is a predominantly Jewish club. So as fate and life would have it, I wound up playing most of the golf that I do get to play with three Jewish guys. A retired dentist a very successful psychiatrist and an also equally successful plastic surgeon. Now, during my marathon days, I did run nine of them. When I was in LA, I often trained for marathons by running up and down a street called San Vicente that runs right along Brentwood and during those days, especially back in when I was covering the L.A. Olympics, I would run by Brentwood, and I used to think, man, I wonder what, what that golf course is like behind those towering hedges. Now when I'm playing inside those high hedges, I sometimes wonder how I wound up inside. But so it was the other day that I asked the psychiatrist in our group, named Ryan, who's, I think he's 41, he has a wife and three kids. I asked Ryan what he thought of Kanye's anti-Semitic remarks and posts and tweets, especially the one about going death con three on Jewish people, not death Def B-E-F con, the actual military term, but death con. I know that yay is said to be bipolar, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't some sincerity behind that threat. And my friend Ryan, the psychiatrist, looked at me with fear in his eyes I'd never seen before. And he said to me, He has 31.8 million followers on Twitter. There are 14.8 million of us in the entire world. He has us outnumbered. That scares me to death," said my friend Ryan. Once, as you know, back in the 1940s, an evil madman in Germany went to war with the United States while attempting to exterminate the Jews in Europe because, as he wrote in his Mein Kampf, they were inferior. He wanted to create a master Aryan race. Maybe some people, like Ye and Kyrie, believe the Holocaust was just a hoax, an exaggeration. I do not. Maybe some people would scoff at the notion that Jews in America fearing any new kind of Hitler-era danger. I can tell you that people I know at Brentwood are not scoffing or shrugging. They are scared. My wife is scared. There are an estimated seven million Jews in America. That's about one fourth the size of Ye's Twitter following, about one fourth the size of his Twitter following. Security at Brentwood has been beefed up. It has been increased. It is on high alert. I read a lengthy story in last Sunday's New York Times that anti-Semitism is on the rise in America. Robert Kraft, the Patriots owner, is so concerned that he has been sponsoring TV ads that say, stand up to Jewish hate. Yay has fanned those flames, if not poured gasoline on them. And you cannot tell me that the link Kyrie posted didn't have something to do with having Ye's back or even being inspired by Ye's anti-Semitism. That link, as we know, was to a film inspired by a book that Rolling Stone termed vehemously, I'm sorry, venomously and vehemously anti-Semitic even accusing Jewish leaders of devil worship, plots for world domination. That book also suggests that the Bible is a lie propagated by the Jews and the Christians. Now, what I love most about America is freedom of speech. What I hated most about what Kyrie did was that he was supporting, he was co-signing, maybe even promoting a book and a film that were uplifting African-American heritage, but at the expense of other faiths and cultures and races and traditions and beliefs. Of course, Ye supported Kyrie by posting that he's one of the real ones CJ McCollum, head of the NBA Players Association, obviously a Pelican, said Kyrie did not know exactly what was in the film. I'm sorry, I do not believe that. I believe Kyrie is extremely high IQ, highly intelligent. Of course, he at first refused to apologize because I believe he knew and knows exactly what that film's message is and that he believes it. My friend Lil Wayne said, well, you know, Kyrie is so argumentative, he'll, he'll argue with anybody. Maybe it was just too hard for him to spill out an apology as he sparred with the media that was asking him in Q&A form exactly why he posted that link. But he did not apologize, and I believe he didn't want to apologize only when the Nets finally, finally suspended him indefinitely. And when it became clear that Nike would drop him an issue deal, did Kyrie issue a written apology? Yet, if you recall, the opening line of his statement really told you all you needed to know. Kyrie wrote, and I quote, while doing research on, this is all caps, YHWH, dot, 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 in quote, that refers to Yahweh, the name of the God of the Israelites, representing the biblical pronunciation of, caps, YHWH, the Hebrew name revealed to Moses in the book of Exodus. Kyrie, deep thinker, is telling you I knew exactly what I was doing, tweeting that link. Kyrie obviously questions the origins of the Hebrews, which he is obviously free in America to do, but he's also condemning the Jews and the Christians and other groups in so doing. He did this while taking $37 million this season to play for the Brooklyn Nets and to represent the National Basketball Association. Obviously, many advertisers, many fans, condemning Kyrie for his stance. And of course, corporate America has cut ties with Yay. I'll say it again. If Kyrie wants to quit basketball and become a full time conspiracy theorist, a revolutionary thinker, a mold shattering contrarian, he is so free to do so because that's America. If he wants to talk about The earth is flat or the Illuminati runs the world or the Bible is a lie or the Holocaust is a hoax. He he is free to go do that. But as we speak, he is obviously a very public figure idolized by millions and millions of fans because he has the rarest of basketball gifts and talents. And because of that, he is not free to even tacitly or subtly or even unintentionally encourage his idolaters to hate Jews. And that I believe is what happened. So yeah, sure, facing financial loss, he finally apologized. Quote, to all Jewish families and communities, that are hurt and affected by my post, I am deeply sorry to have caused you pain. But it's obvious to me, the Nets, the League, are not completely buying the sincerity of that apology. That's why the Nets are now requiring Kyrie to undergo several steps of an education, its it's forms of sensitivity training, before he is reinstated. The object is is just to show Jewish people everywhere that at least Kyrie is starting to get it. I argue with Shannon on air. Shannon says, okay, enough is enough. Don't shame him. He apologized, let's move forward. And I say, no, you can't just finally issue an apology and move forward after that. Not after that. You have to drive home the potential harm he could do to even unwittingly encourage anti-Semites to take violent action against the Jews. I do think I have some feel for Jewish people's fear because I do experience it firsthand on a daily basis. Now, just to be clear, I have not converted to Judaism. I still attend a Methodist church. And by the way, Ernestine attends with me. I'm still very much Christian, though I must admit publicly, I do not like that label and what it started to stand for. I just deeply and dearly believe in a higher power. I just believe in God. And obviously, I do not believe some things taught in the Jewish faith. But I do believe, as pollyanna issues, this might come across, I, I just believe we all came from God. I believe that with all my heart and soul that we're all little pieces of God. And I truly try to love everybody, no matter what they might believe spiritually. That's why I love sports so much. That's why I love talking sports so much. It's the ultimate common ground. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what you believe spiritually. It only matters, in the end, what team or what player you root for. Sports do bring us together. I've spoken many times about my deep feelings for the black community that were fostered in large part by the woman, the black woman who raised me. trust me on this the persecution that black people have suffered on american soil is it's just unthinkable for me it's unspeakable it's it's beyond human comprehension and yet i also grew up in what used to be called indian territory the state of oklahoma which means Red man. The persecution, heck, the the extermination that the American Indians, now called indigenous peoples, what they suffered is, is beyond human comprehension to me and I have studied it. This country declared war on the original people who occupied this land. And atrocities were committed on both sides, unspeakable atrocities beyond human comprehension. And so I believe was what a man named Hitler did in exterminating somewhere around six million Jews, six million. But that happened over there in Europe, not here on American soil. But deep down, in my view, many of the around seven million Jews living in America right now fear it could happen again. I think I have a pretty good perspective on that. I'll leave you with this. This is just me. America is about live and let live. It's about coexisting. America was founded on religious freedom. And then it was founded on bring us your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse yearning to breathe free. America to me is about combined scar tissue. It's about making us strong together. It's about grinning and bearing. It's about looking the other way. It's about, well, that's his opinion or her opinion. Yet in the end, It's about combined strength from so many groups who have gone through so much, combined strength, united, coexisting. We're still by far the greatest country in the world. I just hope that Kyrie can gain some of that perspective, some of that. I hope that Kyrie can ultimately realize what his calling is in life, his purpose is in life, his real calling, real purpose. Right now, basketball doesn't seem that important to him. It's not his priority. It's just something that he just does for fun and obviously for money. But he is being paid to fully commit to winning basketball games, and he is not doing that as we speak. Now, I believe that Kyrie Irving is in career danger of losing basketball as his platform, a platform he has abused again and again and again. That's it for episode 41. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his All-Pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 930 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.